Uh, tomorrow night is the final game of the uh, NCAA basketball tournament. It's what is called March Madness. And they go from 64 teams, they get down uh, to a final four, and the semifinals are played last night. And so tomorrow, uh, there'll be a final that will be played between Wisconsin and Duke. And whenever uh, you start getting close to March Madness, there's something called brackets that um, every Everybody, it seems like, gets caught up in this kind of bracket mania to where people at work and people in families, and they begin to fill out their brackets, and they try to take all the teams and, and see if they can predict who's going to win and who's going to get to the finals and, and who's going to finally win the game. Uh, years ago, when, uh, when our daughter was in high school, we decided to do that as a family. And so we were going to do our own little bracket challenge. And so here's my daughter who's in high school, and she played basketball since she was five years old. So she played a whole lot of basketball. She filled her bracket out. Well, then there's me. You know, I mean, hey, sports guy. Uh, you know, I read everything I can, watch everything I can, listen to everything I can, and I've got it all figured out. And so I got my bracket. And then there's my wife. Now, Janice, she understands basketball, but she doesn't keep up with teams. She, she doesn't really know who's hot, who's not, whatever on there. And so she fills her bracket out. So all three of us fill our bracket out. And then we go through and we get to the finals. And then in the end, figure out who's going to win. I got a feeling you know where this is going. Uh, Janice uh, beat Lauren. Okay. Yeah. And she smoked me. Okay. And uh, it wasn't just the fact that she beat Lauren and she beat me, but the ESPN guy who's the bracketology expert, she smoked him. And then Sports Illustrated, when they send out their issue and they lay out all their brackets, she smoked them. So we don't do that anymore at our house. Uh, she has taken the, the championship trophy and we've just retired it and said, okay, we're going leave to that, leave that with Janice. But as much fun as it is on brackets, filling out brackets, it got kind of serious last year because Warren Buffett said that he would give a billion, a billion with a B, a billion dollars to anyone who had a perfect bracket. So here I was thinking that he's tossing and turning at night, thinking that he's going to have to give up a billion dollars. Turned out no one turned in a perfect bracket turned out that never in the history of doing brackets has anyone ever had a perfect bracket. And a researcher at DePaul University came up with the odds of making a perfect bracket. And it turned out that it was 9.2 quintillion to 1. Let's just give you an idea as to what that looks like. There's 9, 2, and 17 zeros to 1 that you could make a perfect bracket. Bottom line, there are no perfect brackets. But let me tell you something else. There's no perfect people. There's no perfect brackets, and there are no perfect people. Every one of us has sinned. Every one of us has messed up. Every one of us has done something wrong. Whether I'm standing here having an opportunity to preach or I'm in the orchestra or I'm singing in the choir or you're ushering or you're a deacon or you're a visitor, we all have something in common and that is that we have all sinned. We've all messed up. We're not perfect people. But that presents us with a problem. It's called a sin problem. Because there is one God and he is a holy God and if there's a holy God and we're sinful here, how do we ever repair that relationship with him. 
We've been in a series that we're concluding today, and it's a series that we've called Do Something. And it's a call to action. But today the title is Something Done. And that is that God has done something for our sin problem. We're going to look at two different passages of Scripture today as we look at something done. And the first one's found in John chapter 19, verse 30. In John 19.30, it is uh, describing and talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God's Son, came to earth, lived a perfect life, and then he was arrested, falsely charged, beaten, and then was crucified on a cross. And for six hours, he's suspended between heaven and earth. And the Bible records about seven different sayings that he made. And one of those sayings is found here in verse 30. And it says in verse 30, that when Jesus had received the sour wine, <clears throat> he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He received the sour wine. They said that, that came because his lips were parched and he wanted to make this last word to be said. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three other gospels, they recorded as saying he made a loud cry. And most believe this was the loud cry. And he says, it is finished. Now, New Testament was written in Greek, and that it is finished is one word. It's called tetelestai. Tetelestai. And so as that is screamed out, tetelestai, he's saying it is finished. Tetelestai. It's a word that means to bring to a close, to perform a last act which completes a process. It's a word that means to accomplish. It's finished. It's accomplished. Everything is concluded. I've done everything necessary. It is finished. It was a word that was used in everyday life. When a servant was working with his master and he finished the work for the day, he would come to his master and he says, I've completed all that you've asked me to do. In essence, he says, to tell us die. When an artist finished a painting, to tell us die. When a writer finished a manuscript, to tell us die. It's finished. It's done. It's complete. When Jesus was on the cross, he did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. It's not a moan of defeat. It's a shout of victory. It is finished. To tell us die. It's completed. It's been accomplished. You see, he came to do something. And what he said is, something done. It's done. It's exactly what I was called to do. All scripture that was due to be accomplished in his death had now been accomplished. The entire purpose for which the father had sent the son in the world was now assured or fulfilled. Something done. So, so what does that mean? What exactly when he's on the cross, he says, it is finished. What does that mean? Something done. Well, let me, let me share some things that it means. First of all, it means that God's plan concerning Jesus's death was now finished. God's plan concerning Jesus' death was now finished. When he says, it is finished, he says, hey, my plan for your death, it is finished. In the book of Genesis, when you look at the um, creation of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, they were living in perfect relationship with God. And then there came a time where they sinned. And when Adam and Eve sinned, there's this break in this relationship with God. And because of their sin, all of a sudden their eyes were open and they felt they saw that they were naked. 
And, and when they saw that, what God did was he went and took an animal and killed an animal, took the skins of that animal and gave that to them to cover their nakedness. And what he was telling them also is that whenever there is sin, there's a penalty, and the penalty is death. And so the killing of the animal, the shedding of the blood, was paying the penalty for their sin. And so this has continued on. But in Genesis, God began to put into motion a plan that there could be forgiveness for all people for all time. And he put this plan in motion all the way back in the book of Genesis, thousands of years ago. And now, when Jesus is on the cross, giving his last words and says, it is finished. It is that God's plan concerning Jesus' death was finished. A plan that he had set in motion thousands of years ago. But second of all, the ceremonial law was finished. They had a ceremonial law of sacrifice, and now it was finished. Because see, during that day, they understood, okay, if I've sinned and I've messed up and there's this breach between me and God, how do I ever get that back? So they came up with this complicated system of, uh, of sacrifices. And if you had faith in God and you would take your sacrifice and the animal would be killed, the blood would be spilled, it would be poured over and it's like it covered your sins, you could be forgiven. And so by the sacrifice of the animal and your faith in God, your sins were forgiven. And this is a ceremonial law that went on and there was uh, uh, intricacies of things that you had to do and, and, and sacrifices you had to bring. The, the bad news is, is that as soon as I had that sacrifice and I walked away, guess what? Next day I sinned again. And so we were constantly sinning and there was constantly trying to be sacrifices to help for that. But with Jesus' death, this complex sacrificial sin system ended because Jesus took all the sins on himself. And so when Jesus put all the sins on himself, he then said, you can freely come to God. You don't need to bring a sacrifice. That's why when you came today at Easter service, we didn't have out, out on the patio area, we didn't have places to where we were slaughtering animals. And we weren't taking up collections on the back lot to be able to purchase sacrifices for you to sacrifice for your sin. Because see, Jesus paid it all. He took all our sins on him. And when he died, he was the payment for the sins. And that way we can approach God through the sacrifice of Jesus. So the ceremonial law of sacrifice was finished. So when Jesus says, to tell us die, it's finished. Hey, that whole sacrificial system, it's over with. And when you read the New Testament and you get to the book of Acts, you never see them doing sacrifices again. Because Jesus was the, the sacrifice. But number three, the third, is that the prophecies of the Old Testament were now fulfilled. You know, one man did a study and looked through the whole Bible and came up with the fact that there were about 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled with his life, death, and resurrection. But if you just zeroed in on his arrest, his crucifixion, and his burial, there are at least eight prophecies in the books of Psalm, Isaiah, and Zechariah that were written 500 to 1,000 years before Jesus was killed. Just think about that. 500 to 1,000 years before, a prophet said exactly what Jesus would do. And sure enough, he fulfilled that. And so as he was on the cross, he says, it is finished. Hey, the prophecies of the Old Testament, they are now fulfilled. But the fourth thing about something done 
is that our sins are paid in full. Our sins are paid in full. That word to telestai, it's a word that the merchants would use to show that a debt was paid in full. So if you owed money to someone and you came and you paid them their money that was due and the debt was, was completed, they would take that sheet of paper or so and he would just write to telestai over it, which means that your debt's paid in full. You don't owe me any more money. To all our sins are paid in full. It was January 2nd of this year where I got in my car and I drove to America's first federal credit union on Highway 280. And I walked in to that credit union with a check in my hand. And it was a check for my wife's car. It was the final payment for her car. I didn't want to mail this one in. I wanted to eyeball, to eyeball, see the person that I handed this to. So I walked in the store the day after New Year's. It's a new day. I took my check and I handed it to her. She took that thing on the computer, did a lot of things on there. She gave me a receipt. I looked at that receipt. It said over here, this is the amount that you paid. Okay. Then I went over here to the right and I got to the line that I was looking for. Net amount owed. And I looked there and it says point zero zero. And so I screamed, to tell us die. <laughs> no, I didn't. No. But I wanted to. I wanted to. In essence, she said, paid in full. It's paid in full. So I said, I don't have to pay more on that car. It's paid in full. That's a great feeling. But just as I had such a great feeling walking out of that credit union, getting back into my car, What a great feeling it is to know that my sins are paid in full. An even greater thing to know is that all of my sins have been paid in full through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So when he says it is finished, it's as if he's looking at each one of us and he says, it's paid in full. Your sins there are paid in full. Jesus had met the righteous demands of a holy law and he paid our debt in full. It is finished. It's a signal that God succeeded in accomplishing everything he designed to do in the life of his son. In Jesus, he demonstrated his love for us. In Jesus, he revealed his will for our lives. In Jesus, he brought about a reconciliation that needs no supplement. Jesus' victory at the cross is the basis of our security. My confidence in God, my assurance of my salvation cannot be anchored in my religious performance because he paid it all. It is finished. What was needed to satisfy God needs to satisfy us as well. There's nothing we can add to what Jesus did. Jesus did not say, it is finished, eh, plus a little bit more. He said, it is finished, which means you, don't, you can't add baptism to it. You can't add any good works to it. Now, what those are, are those are things that take place after salvation. It moves me to do these things, but it does not save me. Christ did it all. He said, it is finished. Danny, your debt is paid in full. And that is the good news of the gospel. One of the great statements in all the Bible is, it is finished. 
R.G. Lee was a pastor in the uh, mid-20th centuries. And some of you that are older adults may have heard him, just an iconic preacher. He took this word to telestai, and he described how powerful it is. Listen to what he has to say. R.G. Lee says, The greatest word ever uttered in the greatest moment in time by the greatest person who ever lived on earth, announcing the greatest fact to the greatest number of people, bringing the greatest blessing to the greatest multitude in earth and heaven, it is finished declared the greatest single triumph in the history of the human race. The sin of man is put away by the sacrifice of Christ himself. Wow, look at that last part. The sin of man put away by the sacrifice of Christ himself. It is great news. It is finished. In that word is wrapped up the whole gospel of Christ. In that one word, we find our entire basis for our salvation, the ground for all of our assurance and our hope of eternal life. When Jesus says it is finished, it meant that he had done everything necessary to save you for now and for eternity. He says it is finished. He said he has done it all. He came to do something, and guess what? Something done. He did it. He went to the cross, and he died for our sins. Jesus had done all that he could do. But there still needed to be one more step. In order to solidify the reconciliation between a holy God and sinful man, one more step to provide salvation for all humanity See, there's one more something that needs to be done, and only God can do it, and that is to raise Jesus from the dead, never to die again. You know, if Jesus did everything that the Father asked him to do, he lived the perfect holy life, he stayed in perfect communion with God, he obediently went to the cross. He even said, if I wanted to, I could call 10,000 angels down right now and they'd clean house on every one of you, but he didn't. So he willingly went to the cross. He was totally obedient to everything God asked him to do. And he took all the sins of the world and placed it on him and he paid that full debt for us. But that wasn't enough because there has to be one more thing, one more step. Because you see, if the story of Jesus had ended with him wrapped in linens and oils and spices in a tomb, it'd be a pretty sad story. Because if Jesus was still dead, then what that would mean is that sin still wins, death still wins, and we have no hope. But if he's truly raised from the dead, then all of a sudden sin is conquered, death is conquered, and hope springs eternal. So it all comes down to, was he going to stay dead? Or was God going to take him and raise him from the dead? Well, that's where we come to the second part of Scripture, and that's found in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, if you look at that, it's the story of following his crucifixion and his burial. There are some ladies that are wanting to come to the tomb, and they're going to do this on Sunday morning. And so Friday night, Friday afternoon, he was placed in the tomb. Saturday was the Sabbath. They waited till the Sabbath ended, and then they came on Sunday. 
And on Sunday morning, they were going to the tomb. And if you look at what it says in the first verse, it says, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. Now, I kind of smile when I, when I read this because um, it, it's, it's as if these women said there's some unfinished business. Um, you know, when, when Jesus died, they took him down. Some men took him down from the cross. They prepared his body and they hurriedly had to place him in the tomb because they had to get everything done before sundown. So that's what they did. And as some women would be, they'd say, you know what? They just didn't do the job right. Okay. We got to do a little bit better job. And so naturally they got together and they said, you know, they didn't do the right spices or oils, didn't do enough. And so you got to do it just right. And so we want to, because we love him, we're going to better prepare the body. Okay. And so they prepared everything and they got up and that early that next morning, they came to the tomb. And they were going to the tomb and their purpose was to be able to take these uh, oils and these spices and better even prepare that body for burial. But their question was, was there's this big stone there, who's going to roll away the stone? So they had all kind of questions going, going on in their mind. And it says in verse 2, it says, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, you have to understand that as they're making their way to the tomb, they're going really in sorrow. I mean, they are still disheartened. The one that they followed has been brutally killed, crucified. And so there's sadness and there's mourning, there's confusion, and now all of a sudden they're going and they're going to the tomb. And it would be the same as if, um, if you were taking flowers to the cemetery and there was a loved one that you wanted to go to their grave and you were taking flowers to the cemetery. And, uh, and when you go, it's, it's kind of sad because you realize that there's that separation that you have. And, and while you're there, uh, there can be times to where you can be thankful for the memories you have, but there's a sadness when you're taking those flowers there. And so there was a sadness they had as they were approaching the tomb. Well, now they find out that the door, uh, excuse me, the stone has been rolled away. And when they peer in, there's no body. It's empty. Now, think if you were going to the cemetery to go take flowers to a loved one. If you turned the corner and you came to the grave and it was empty, what would you think? Oh, my goodness, Grandma, she's alive. I mean, what do you think? Well, that's the same reaction they had. They turned around and they weren't expecting the tomb to be empty. They were expecting there to be a body there. And so it says in verse 4, it says that the women were perplexed. It says they were perplexed about this. And behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. These were angels, messengers of God. And in the middle of their bewilderment, these angels spoke to them. Look what it says in verse 5. In verse 5, it says, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? It's a great question. What they were doing is kind of almost gigging them a little bit. And he says, Okay, now you brought all this stuff for a person that's dead. He's not here. Why are you here? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Because he's no longer here. And so as the angel challenges them, they're saying, really, you're in the wrong place. You don't need to be here because he's not dead. But then in verse 6, he comes up with the next statement, which to me is another great statement that, that is just like the statement, it is finished. And this is what he says. He says, he is not here, but has risen. Wow. There's the key to it. 
He is not here. He has risen. And so this is, again, one of the more important statements in all the Bible is that Jesus is not here, not that his body's been moved, not that it's been stolen, but he is risen. And that's your fifth point of done something. And that is Jesus is risen from the dead. The work of man's redemption and salvation was now completed. That's a lot, but it's a huge truth. Jesus is risen from the dead. And because of that, the work of man's redemption and salvation was now completed. This is what we needed. We needed Jesus to be raised from the dead. And you see, the physical body of Jesus was raised from the dead, raised by God. And when he did that, then all of a sudden we realized that there's a victory over sin and there's a victory over death. And that's where the good news and that's where the hope is. And that's why Easter is so important. Because if this did not happen, then it's a sad state of affairs for us to come every Sunday and to talk about some man that lived, died, had some pretty good teachings, but was disillusioned because he thought he was the son of God. And what good would that do any of us? We're still lost in our sins. And death still gets the final victory. But because he raised from the dead, sin conquered, death conquered, Hope is there. The angel says, but he is risen. So how did that happen? Look at Romans 10.9. In Romans 10.9, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That God raised him from the dead. So what God did is he says, Jesus, my son, you've done everything that you were supposed to have done. And now I'm going to step in because you were obedient and I am going to raise you from the dead. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, ah, at that moment, salvation was, the path to salvation was made complete. And in that moment, According to what Paul has said here, if you confess with your mouth, you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. It means you'll be saved from your sins. And it means that you'll come into a right relationship with God and that when you die, you'll spend eternity with him in heaven because the debt for your sin has been paid by Christ and you've accepted that gift. And so when the angel says, but he has risen, man. That was huge to these people. And it's not just resuscitation, the coming back to life into some mortal body that would die again. It's a physical resurrection, the raising of Christ to an immortal splendor of a body that could never die again. But how could these women know what is true? I mean, he just said, but he is risen. And they probably still have a question mark on their face. But then look what he says in verse 6. And he says, Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. So while you were walking with him, remember the words that he told you. I know the tomb is empty. And I know you can look around. And he said, I'm not going to give you a bunch of uh, physical evidence explaining that he's not here. You see the grave clothes, they're still there. It's just like, like poof, he was gone. He didn't get into all that. He says, let me just tell you this while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. What the angel did is he called them back to the words of Jesus and he says, do you remember when you traveled with him that he told you this was going to happen? And that would have caused them to go back and begin to think about that. Because numerous times Jesus had told them this exact same thing. In Luke 9, 22, after Peter made this confession of faith and he said, Jesus is the son of God, 
this is what Jesus said to him. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is exactly what he told his followers. Well, then all of a sudden he had this amazing experience, what they call the transfiguration found in the book of Mark. And he looks to his disciples and this is what he tells them. He says, Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, (coughs) excuse me, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. This is what he told them. And then just recently, as he was traveling to Jerusalem, he had to go through Jericho to go up to Jerusalem for Passover, where he would be arrested. And as he's traveling through there, look what he says. In Luke chapter 18, he takes the 12, he says to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Remember, we just talked about that. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. The crucifixion. Again, he says, I will be killed. And on the third day, he will rise. Third day, he will rise. Over and over and over, he had told them. And because of the words of Jesus, when the angel was talking to these ladies, and they've got this look of bewilderment. And he says, he is risen. And they're probably wondering, how is that? He says, remember his words. Everything he's told you has come true. And now he's telling you this. And guess what? It has come true also. And in verse 8 it says, and they remembered his words. And there was no turning back after that. And they remembered his words. You see, the empty tomb is not self-explanatory. I've been there. I've been to Jerusalem. I've been to what they feel like is the garden tomb. And I've walked into it and I've, I've stood in there and they've shown where they feel like the body of Christ ha- had been laid. And just the fact that it's an empty tomb does not explain itself. But we're to believe on the resurrection on the basis of what Jesus said. And he said, I will be crucified in the third day. I'll raise from the dead. And he did did exactly what he said, and God did exactly what God said he would do. Everything happened just the way that Jesus prophetically said it would. And the words of all these prophecies came true. He said, I will be crucified. He was crucified. He said, I will die. He died. He said, I'll be buried in a tomb. He was buried in a tomb. And he said, three days later, I'll be alive. And he was. Jesus said that something was going to be done. And the angel affirmed it was something done. He's risen. And it's the word of God that makes sense of all of this. Jesus not only died, but he rose again with a glorious, everlasting body that would never die again. And so remember what Jesus said. He said, I will die to atone for your sins. I will pay the penalty for your sins. And then Jesus says that I will be raised to give you eternal life. And he's been raised to give us eternal life. And if you believe these truths, God will forgive your sins. And one day when you die, he'll raise your body from the grave and he will give you everlasting joy. God has done exactly what he said he would do. And so he's provided this pathway for you and for me. A pathway to forgiveness of sins. A pathway to a purpose in life. A pathway to peace and joy and comfort and hope and purpose, 
and abundance of life. All of these things he has provided for us. But he's waiting on us to be able to accept that gift. Something done. Jesus has done it on the cross. God has done it in raising his son from the dead. And so today on Easter Sunday, he's offering you an invitation to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. To accept his gift of grace. His offer is there and he is pleading with you to do something. The ball's in your court. Make that call. Accept his gift. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Heavenly Father, we thank you on Easter Sunday morning that it is a joyous time. We thank you that we are not bemoaning the death of a misguided martyr, but we are celebrating the resurrection of the Son of God. And so because of that, Lord, we come to you with great praise and excitement. But Father, we know it's an invitation that is given, and it's given for each one of us, and that we need to respond to that. I'm praying for each person here, Lord, that you speak to their hearts. Everyone here is in a different situation. Everyone here is different seeking and searching, but everyone here needs to have a relationship with you. And so it's my prayer, Father, that you would speak into the hearts and draw those to you that have that desire to come to you, and that today they would do that something, and they would receive you as Savior. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.